Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors at the Summit. So glad you could be with us. Um, I want to start with sharing with you, when I was growing up, this is going to date my age a little bit, but my favorite uh, show growing up was this. This is, if you don't know, if you don't know, you should know, this is Saved by the Bell. Love Saved by the Bell, and I'm sure there's some other people who are Saved by the Bell lovers as well. And uh, what would happen every once in a while, uh, sitcoms in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s would do this, is every single time, uh, every once in a while, a show like Save the Body of the Bell would do something like this. This is what's called a very special episode. Um, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, YouTube after this, I'm so excited, I'm so excited, I'm so scared, and uh, you're welcome. You're welcome in advance. The way a very special episode works is that a show would take a, you know, maybe an episode a season outside of the normal uh, programming for them, and they would deal with a predominant cultural issue, for example, Saved by the Bell, dealing with the issue of drug use. And it was kind of bizarre because this episode would just be totally different than all the other ones, and then the next week everything was back to normal like they had never talked about it at all. That is what I am scared is going to happen in our culture and in churches. That last week, um, a lot of people ceased, paused, and decided to speak to the very serious cultural issue and the grievous sin of racism and issues of race in our country. And then the next week, because human nature a lot of times is to not want to sit in discomfort, but to rush through it and to move on to the next thing, is that we will far too quickly get back to life as normal. But with the murder of George Floyd and the very crucial issues, societal issues it arises, as we described uh, in weeks before, uh, we've called this a parable or a condensed symbol that is reflective of a much more haunting reality. And we have seen even in culture the degree to which people can rush back to some resemblance of normalcy. We want to be Different. We do not want just last week to be a very special episode, but instead we want to, as the people of God, reflect the character of our God. And our God is committed, he is covenantal, he is steadfast, he is long-suffering. And consequently, we're going to, in line with this, take the remainder of June to continue this conversation. The way we're going to do this, this mini-series, is we're going to see the way that Jesus, uh, what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, speaks to the current cultural moment, and we have titled this mini-series, get ready for this, The Moment and the Mount. I know, super, super creative. Now today, what I want to talk to you about is the call to and the power of empathy. Empathy is the striving to understand um, and not just to understand, but to feel, to discipline yourself, to not only see the world through your instincts and preferences and experiences, but to discipline yourself to think for another and to consider what their experience is. Um, and I'm just going to dive right into what Jesus says here. Uh, this is maybe Jesus' most famous saying. If you're new to learning about Jesus, we're really glad you're with us. And even you might have some familiarity with this concept of the golden rule. But Jesus just says this. He says in verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, the first question I want us to work through together is this, is what does the golden rule mean? What does the golden rule mean? Let me read what has been historically called the golden rule. Again, whatever you wish that others would do to you, 
do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So as we strive to answer this question of what does the golden rule mean, there are two fundamental components. That is empathy and action. Empathy and action. Now, we see that Jesus is here giving a summary statement of the law and the prophets. This would have been a customary way of referring to the Old Testament. So he's basically saying, if you want to know the life that the Old Testament law is calling you to in your love of God and love of neighbor, and particularly in your love of neighbor, what should mark your rhythms of life is that of empathy and that of action towards your neighbor for the sake of their flourishing. Now, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about empathy, but I first want to make an observation about action because I think that's very crucial, particularly with the conversation we're having right now. Now, what's interesting about the golden rule, so first we're talking about action here. What's interesting about the golden rule is Jesus did not invent this concept. He's not the first person to say basically kind of what it is that he is saying here that we just read. Um, So Jesus did not invent the concept of the golden rule, but he did differentiate it. He did elevate it. He elevated this principle in the most stunning way. So for example, we know from history that around the time when Jesus lived, there was a very famous Jewish rabbi by the name of Rabbi Hillel. And we know that uh, Rabbi Hillel, somebody asked him a question very similar to the one that Jesus is answering here. What is the law all about? And here's what this rabbi said. He said, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Now, if you notice, that statement is written in what we would call the negative. That is, think of what you do not personally like and don't do that to other people. Now, what's interesting is Jesus takes this principle and, as far as we know, is the first teacher in history to take this concept, flip it, elevate it, and to teach it positively, to elevate this principle from a call to inaction that is, don't do certain things, to action. Go and do certain things. And the difference is stunning. This is, as I was studying this passage, this one little verse, this was by far the most just heart-moving reality that emerged from me. Um, I'm going to quote biblical scholar William Mounts here. He says this, in its negative form, so the way it was typically taught up until Jesus arriving on the scene, And it's a negative form. The golden rule could be satisfied by doing nothing. The positive form moves us to action on behalf of others. I'm going to read that last line again because it's very crucial. The positive form, so the way that Jesus is teaching the golden rule here, moves us to action on behalf of others. All of that is uh, 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 wrapped up in that beautiful little word that Jesus says there, do, say that word with me, do also to them. And that one little word, Jesus is offering this historically unprecedented mandate for people not only to think certain ways or have certain personal secret convictions, but to live a life of action for the sake of the flourishing of my neighbor. That yes, we will talk about empathy, but empathy must be wedded to action. So um, let me, before we we move on to empathy, let me just make a quick uh, aside and observation and application of this principle. Because again, we're not just trying to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, but we're trying to directly connect the ancient wisdom of Jesus to the current cultural moment, in particular the current cultural conversation around that of race and racism. 
And I said, well, the golden rule from Jesus is moving us towards in doing to our neighbor what we would want done to us is to see it's not just enough to personally not be a racist. Now, I'm hoping that's the way you feel. I am thankful that you are not a racist. I uh, believe that racism is fundamentally antithetical to the heart of God. So it's good you're there, but that's not, the, that's not the destination. That's not the end goal. That's the starting line. That's the starting line. It's not just enough to personally have the conviction of not being a racist. That personal conviction must lead us to a life of outward action. That is, we cannot just personally not be racist, but we have to think about what actions do I need to take in order to stamp out expressions of racism as well. Now, if you remember last week, for example, um, when, in our interview with Mucci, Mucci had a very powerful line where he said, a lot of times the work of justice, it's private, it's personal, it's long. And um, I, I was trying to think about where do we see that kind of, what, what's a particular way that might uh, flesh its way out um, in, the, uh, in the coming weeks. And some of you have probably even experienced this. I think what it means is it totally flips a scenario, particularly if you're white, I think that you get put in um, more than you realize where there's a certain way that people might talk publicly, and then you know three or four white people might get together and start having a conversation, and one and two of them might start saying some stuff that's like fairly racist, that, that makes you feel uncomfortable. And maybe this is at a family get-together, maybe this is with a group of friends or coworkers, and I think a lot of times what people feel is the action step in a moment like that is, Personally, I do not agree with what you're saying. However, also personally, I don't really want to stir the pot. I don't really want to have a conversation about this. I don't want to make things weird at Thanksgiving dinner. And consequently, I'll sort of silently, personally disagree. I'll let them say whatever it is they want to say. And then, because I feel uncomfortable right now, I'm going to figure out how to change the conversation to something that's far less polarizing like sports. See, if Jesus taught the golden rule negatively, that response is perfectly acceptable. But he has called us to action, beloved. And so even in that small little expression of injustice where our brother or sister in Christ, who maybe doesn't look like us, is being mistreated and degraded and dehumanized, we are called to action. We are called to ask ourselves, if somebody was talking about me in that way, what would I want somebody to do? And what I would say is, what you don't want somebody to do is silently stand by and personally have the conviction of disagreement. You would want them to speak on your behalf and to stand up for you and to fight and to have difficult conversations and create opportunities for redemptive moments. But if you are not willing to speak, those opportunities are not there for the power of God to change people's hearts through your action and courage. So we are called to action. We're also called to empathy. Jesus says this in verse 12. We're going to spend the remainder of our time talking about empathy. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you. Now, uh, it's interesting. Over the last decade or so, there's been a rise of TED Talks, books, podcasts, resources, all about emotional health, relational health, and the, the crucial uh, uh, rhythm in relational health for empathy. Uh, it's almost like people feel like we've discovered this concept. And I'm really thankful for those resources. I've read more on uh, 
these concepts than anything else when I've been on, uh, when we've been in the midst of this quarantine and, and pandemic. I really enjoy learning about these concepts. But this is not something new. One of the things I love is when culture feels like they've discovered something and Jesus actually talked about it uh, 2,000 years ago. The, the, the statement that Jesus is making here in verse 12 is so empathetic, such a call to a rhythm of empathy in our hearts. Whatever you wish that others would do to you. Now, this is hard. I, I love it when people throw out the golden rule like it's the most obvious and easy thing to do. It's hard to do this. It's hard to walk into a room and not instinctually assume you're the most important person there whose needs need to be met. It's hard not to function believing that you are the center of the universe. It's hard not to look at other people and to assume that your experience is the only experience and it's the most important experience and everybody else needs to figure out how to fit into that. It is a discipline, a holy discipline, to say before I'm thinking about myself, I'm thinking for others through the lens of myself. And I'm looking at other people not through the lens of how do I get from them and how do I take from them, but instead what do they need and how do I give that thing to them. But the gospel possesses the power to transform our selfish hearts and to count other people more important than ourselves. To have this discipline of thinking not only do I, what do I want, but how does that fundamentally transform the way I think about you and what you're going through and how do I give you what I think it is that you would need. But the gospel changes our hearts. This is the idea behind what Paul says in Philippians 2, where he's dealing with this concept, where he says, Jesus was in the form of God. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he says it's when we grasp that we have been changed, saved, transformed by this reality, then we become the kind of people in relationships who can do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is essentially the golden rule applied. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, that's instinctual earthly thinking, but also to the interests of others. The golden rule applied. Even just pause and stop and think about what is my fundamental posture towards the people in my life, of anybody from a close as a friend and family member to anybody who is a stranger, and ask ourselves, has the gospel moved our hearts in approaching people less from a lens of, here's what I want, so I'm going to make sure I get it from you, to I've done the work of thinking of what your experience is like and what you would want, and so now my priority is giving to you. It's that work of empathy, of thinking for the flourishing and the experience of other people that is fundamentally essential to having a healthy friendship, marriage, and even just cultural interactions uh, as well. Now, what I want to do now then is try to apply this call of empathy from the scriptures to the current moment, and particularly the moment of deep pain that is being felt by our brothers and sisters of color. And um, I want you to see, 
Let me, let me just read this again, and, and we'll try to apply this again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, what is Jesus telling us to do? Think about what it is that you would want, and don't fight to get that, but fight to give it. Do you understand that? And so here's the question I want to ask is, um, in a moment of deep pain in your life, what is it that you fundamentally want? When you're in a moment of deep pain, let me, let me just throw out a hypothetical situation. Let's say that you got dumped. There was this person you were going to grow old with and have babies with, and you got dumped, and you were absolutely devastated and wrecked in the pit of despair and pain. What is it? that you want in that moment. Well, let's start with what it is that I think you probably don't want. And for any of you who've experienced trauma or pain, um, you've, you've experienced <laughs> some really unhelpful responses to that pain. Here's some things you probably don't want. You probably don't want shaming. Shaming says, I don't really get why you're so upset about this. What's the big deal? Why are you so sensitive? You probably don't want statistics. You know, when you just got dumped like that, you probably don't want a friend being like, well, actually, 92% of dating relationships end in breakups, so it was statistically probable that you guys weren't going to work out anyways. I'm not sure why you're surprised. You don't want at least, well, at least he didn't cheat on you. At least she didn't post something on social media that was embarrassing. You probably don't want comparisons. Like, look, I understand this probably seems like it hurts, but actually there are people who are starving right now in the world, and so I don't understand why you feel like this has to be such a big deal. Now, if you've ever experienced somebody responding to your pain in that way, it's not only devastating, but it is amplifying of your pain because you're being so dismissed in the midst of your despair. What do we ultimately want when we are in the pit of despair and pain? Really, what we want is somebody to get in the pit with us. And even if they've never experienced the same thing as us, to just mirror back to us, reflect to us, like, I see you, and I hear you, and I don't even understand exactly what this is like, but I'd love to try to understand if you would let me, and I'm, and I'm really sorry. Gosh, that must be so hard. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, that conversation itself is fundamentally healing. It's, it's hardwired in our biology. Um, I, I was reading a book this past couple weeks on um, how does somebody heal from trauma, and uh, the author is a counselor. It was talking about how what somebody needs more than anything else, so this is more than like $500 an hour counselors, not that that's fundamentally bad or anything, more than um, the perfect solution. Here's what he said. I thought this was so interesting. He said, the one thing that somebody really needs to walk down the path of healing from trauma is to have our pain validated, mirrored, and echoed in the eyes of just one non-shaming person. It can even be a friend. Counselors tend to be really great at this. Good friends tend to be really good at this, where you share something vulnerable and painful with them, and they just say, gosh, that must have been hard. Thank you for sharing that with me. Now, if we can think about that reality and then apply it to the current cultural moment, um, the challenge with the murder of George Floyd, there's a lot of challenges, but I think um, one of them is the wide array of issues and debates people want to have. It feels like a thousand issues are intertwined with this one murder. And um, 
But what I want to challenge we as the Summit Church to be is a people who see this murder first and foremost through the lens of pain for our brothers and sisters, through the lens of pain for an entire community, and in particular, our brothers and sisters of color who, you know, as we've said earlier, um, would I think if you're listening, affirm that a scene like that one uh, is a parable, a condensed symbol reflective of a far larger experiential haunting reality that not only historically have people of color been treated this way in this country, but even today culturally and personally, if you're listening, this traumatic experience has been directly tied to how they look and that while God made them to uniquely and beautifully bear God's image, their experience has not only been something other, but it's been something lesser. And I think if you're in relationship with people who maybe don't necessarily look like you, if you're white, and if you're listening, you will be um, shocked and horrified of what your friends have experienced and are experiencing. And what I want to challenge us in this moment to be marked by is empathy in response to our brothers' and sisters' pain, a, a, a striving to, at the best that we can, to listen and to learn and to draw near and to get in the pit and not do some weird thing where you pretend to perfectly understand, but to have the emotional intelligence and compassion to say, oh my goodness, that sounds excruciating. Like, thank you for trusting me with sharing with me. Now, let me, let me give a quick side note before we go on. What this is not is a call to text or call, if you're white, um, every single non-white acquaintance you've ever made in your entire life to demand people to share their personal trauma, okay? I, I think some of that has been happening over the last couple of weeks, and that in itself is not the most thoughtful thing to do. I think somebody has the right to share deep personal pain when and with who they want to share. So I would be sensitive to that reality. But what I'm just saying is, is hopefully you have relationships with people who don't look like you, and maybe you just send a text and say, hey, I don't, I'm not forcing you to talk about anything. I just want to let you know I love you, I support you, and if you want to talk, I'm here for you. And if you were taking up on that opportunity, that you respond to that with empathy and not statistics. Please, empathy, not statistics. Not shaming, not at least, not comparisons. Because when you're loving your neighbor like yourself, you realize how much you hate to be treated in that way. And so we don't treat our neighbor in that way. Uh, I've read a lot uh, just trying to make sense of how to respond properly to what's going on in our culture. Um, but by far the most helpful thing that I read um, came from a, uh, a hip-hop artist in incredible follower of Jesus by the name of Shai Lim. And he wrote an article called George Floyd and Me. I would throw that into the Google machine and discipline yourself to read it. Definitely, read. it's very, very good. I just wanted to read you a bit of an excerpt from this because I think it starts to build within us a sense of empathy and compassion and to understand, to start to try to understand what really is going on in the deep pain of this particular moment. 
This is an article where he's basically summing up, like, what does watching that murder on video make him feel? And he says this, I am heartbroken and devastated. I feel gutted. I haven't been able to focus on much at all since I saw the horrific video of George Floyd's murder. The image of that officer with hand in pocket as he calmly and callously squeezed the life out of that man while he begged for his life is an image that will haunt me until the day I die. But it's not just the video of this one incident. For many black people, it's never just about one incident. Just as it wasn't, about the, wasn't with the videos of Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, Laquan McDonald, Walter Scott, Rodney King, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is about being a black man in America and how it shaped both the way I see myself and the way that others have seen me my whole life. It's about being told to leave the sneaker store as a 12-year-old because I was taking too long to decide which sneakers I wanted to buy with my birthday money, and the white saleswoman assumed I was in the store to steal something. And he goes on. He just walks through the story of his life and experiences that are totally different than any experience I have personally had. And it is, it is haunting, but it's crucial to listen to. But the most haunting thing he wrote... And this is where we can do something about this in some way. The most haunting line he wrote is he says this, that one of the most hurtful things we can do is to make mourners justify their pain. And hearing that and fueled by our love of neighbor and the golden rule, we do not want to make our brothers and sisters justify their pain. We want to validate and be proximate to their pain. And we are not responding that way because of certain political convictions or trying to falsely project wokeness, but because we have gospel-transformed hearts that not only call us, but empower us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That we are simply mirroring to a hurting world the kindness empathy, and identification that Jesus showed to us. Jesus did not love us from a distance. And when we were in the pit of despair, he did not throw at us statistics or rules, thanks be to God. He stepped out of heaven into history. And surely we have a great high priest who is able to perfectly sympathize with our weaknesses. We want to, in some way, reflect that proximate identifying love in our rhythms of life as well. So we're going to pray in response to that end. I'm just going to pray for that, and then uh, Shekinah is going to come back up and lead us in a uh, time of response. So, Father, I just pray that what would move in our hearts is your kindness towards us, and not just that, but the way that you've loved us. And the way that you loved us would fuel us to love those around us in the same way as well. Uh, we particularly pray that we, as the people of God, are marked by empathy and action in this very unique cultural moment that we would not just rush on to the next thing. And, um, and Father, by the power of your Spirit, empower us to live that way and respond rightly now in this time. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.